Thank you for uh, joining us this weekend. I know it's beautiful outside. I know it's a holiday weekend. Um, I thank you guys for taking the time to uh, worship with us this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to John 3. If you've been part of our church this year, we have been, uh, so far this year, we did a verse-by-verse study through the book of Ephesians that led us to Easter. Uh, Then we were in the Old Testament looking at the minor prophets, Haggai and Malachi. Cal spent the last three weeks Uh, going through a quick series in the Psalms, we really try to give you the whole counsel of God's word. And what we're doing um, for the rest of the summer is we're kicking off a series um, called The King is in the Room. And and every year we try to build in a, a season within our preaching calendar where we're in one of the gospels, we're looking directly at our savior. The spotlight is on Jesus Christ. I hope even when we're in the Um, Old Testament or in the Psalms, you're seeing us connect whatever we're teaching back to the cross and to the gospel. But there's a season every year, it's important to us, it's kind of critical mission for us that we spend some time in the gospel with your focus directly on Jesus Christ. And we're going to be in John 3 this morning. As you open your Bible to the gospel of John, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. They kind of follow the same form. They follow the same storyline. John's different. John is writing. He is picking stories. He is making an argument, and he's very clear on why he writes the way that he does. He says in John 20, verse 30, he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John's like, there's a lot of other things I could have told you. The things that I've told you, I gave for a reason. He says in verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John, he doesn't cover the birth of Jesus. He jumps right in, in chapter one, starts to talk about in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and we beheld his glory and talks about Jesus right from the beginning. He starts with the disciples and John the Baptist. And as we go into John three, John's gonna do some things in chapter three and chapter four. He's going to introduce us to two conversations, two individuals. These two individuals could not be more um, different. In John 3, it's a man. In John 4, it's a woman. In John 3, it's an educated, highly esteemed official. John 4, it's a woman at a well. We don't even get her name. John 4, it's a conversation at midday. John 3, it's a conversation at night. And in these two conversations, we're just going to be looking at John 3 today. He's going to give us the essentials of what it means to be saved. Now, 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 church, we can argue and debate a lot of different theologies, a lot of different doctrines. We cannot get John 3 wrong. And what we're going to see in John 3 is this is going to be the longest dialogue by our Savior, Jesus Christ, on what it's going to mean if we choose to be a follower of him, if we choose to be born again, if we choose to be saved. So let me pick it up right in. Um, I'm actually going to pick it up at the end of chapter 2, verse 23. There's kind of a ramp up into what we're reading in John 3. It says in verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So in chapter 2, Jesus is starting to perform miracles. He's starting to perform signs. He's starting to have multitudes talk about him. There is a buzz. Right before these verses in John 2, Jesus has entered the temple. He's looked around at the money changers. He's grabbed a whip and driven them from the temple. So Jesus is creating a disruption in Jerusalem. 
It's not business as usual in Jerusalem. It says many are believing because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. It's interesting that word entrust there. It's actually the same word when it says just a verse before many believe. So in essence what it's saying is many were believing in Jesus but he wasn't believing in them. Well, well, why? Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now we start chapter three. There was a man named Nicodemus. So the backdrop is Jesus already knows this man's heart because he's coming to him by night. Jesus already knows why he's there. He understands that the multitude is excited about what Jesus is doing. They love the miracles. He's solving their problems, but they're not viewing him as king. Let's pick it up in John 3, verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So a couple things. Let's talk about this man, Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. Not only was he a Pharisee, it says he was a ruler of the Jews, which means he was at the upper echelon of what it meant to be a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And the way politics worked in Israel at this time, Rome was the occupying army. They were the empire. They allowed the Jews to basically govern themselves as long as there wasn't any uprising. So the Sanhedrin has related to the Jewish people. They had huge authority. They could basically set the laws, set the rules. They couldn't kill, but beyond that, they could do just about anything. So he was one of the ruling parties. In verse 10 of John 3, Jesus will look at him. He says, aren't you the teacher of Jerusalem? Many would argue that Nicodemus isn't just a member of the Sanhedrin or a Pharisee. He is the teacher of his day. He is a very religious man. He is old. He is wealthy. He is highly esteemed. And by the way, if you want to take your resume of good deeds against his, you lose. And I'm saying that to an audience who's here on a holiday weekend when it is zero clouds in the sky and absolutely perfect Michigan weather. Like props to you. But it doesn't compare to this man Nicodemus. Just to give you an example... If you think back, okay, can anybody quickly name, Trisha, I'm going to pick on you. Can you name the first book of the Bible? Genesis. Can you quote Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can you give me two? Genesis 1-2? Okay, I stumped you, right? So, so, like, how long have you guys been attending this church? Okay, so eight years they've been here. You got the first verse. Way to go. Like one, okay? Now, now last night I picked at one of our pastors. He kind of knew what was in verse two, okay? Nicodemus, he's got Genesis 1-1 memorized. As a matter of fact, he's got the whole book memorized. And Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. The entire Torah, the five books of the law memorized. He, he's an expert, at Old Testament law. And I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments. The Pharisees had looked at the Old Testament. They said there were 613 commandments that they had to keep. And on top of that, they had what they called fence laws. For those commands, how do we keep them? Another 1,500 laws. For, for example, it wasn't just that they had to keep the Sabbath, but how do you keep the Sabbath? Pharisees would tell you you weren't allowed to spit on the Sabbath. 
Don't eat anything sour. You got a problem, okay? You can't spit on the Sabbath. Later on, Jesus will spit in the dirt and he'll take the dirt and he'll rub it and he'll place it on a man's eyes and heal his blindness on the Sabbath and the Pharisees will go nuts. Can't do that. That's work. You can't flot a swat, a, a swat a fly. You can't flot a swat. You can't swat a fly on the Sabbath. That would be hunting. If you're in your house on the Sabbath and you realize that it's on fire, you can't grab a bunch of clothes and carry them out. That would be work. But you can put layer after layer of clothes on and wear them out. That's not work. Okay, they thought all of this through. Every scenario, that's who the Pharisees were. That's Nicodemus. Now I want you to notice he comes to Jesus by night. Why, why come to Jesus by night? What was, what was he afraid of? Who was he afraid that would see? And, and I've kind of always looked at this story and said, well, he was probably scared of the other Pharisees, that, that they would judge him for going to understand or try to figure out who Jesus was. That's not the case. And we know it's not the case because when he begins his conversation with Jesus, he says, we know that you are of God. Way more likely to be speaking on behalf of the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees rather than in hiding from them. He comes to them by night. What, what's going on here? My best understanding is this is a backroom negotiation. Jesus is causing a disruption. And if Rome gets word of the disruption in Jerusalem, it's not going to go well for anybody. Rome's going to come down with an iron fist. So the Pharisees see what just happened in the temple. They see the multitude starting to form. And we're saying, we got to navigate this situation. Somebody go meet with Jesus. Maybe we can help him. He can help us. But we cannot allow a disruption. He's meeting with Jesus. He doesn't want anything to get out of hand. He doesn't want the religious system. He doesn't want life disrupted. He says, I know that you're a teacher. He refers to them with respect. He says, Rabbi, I know that you're a teacher sent from God. Now, that's great. Jesus is God. He doesn't understand just yet who he's talking to. He says this, there's a man named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Religious man, leader, devoted his life to the Old Testament, to the law. Goes and meets with Jesus. Speaks on behalf of the other leaders, we and Jesus says, no, 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 no. This isn't about y'all. It's about you. You must be born again. Now, now, this phrase, born again, it's still kind of in our vernacular even 2,000 years later. People will talk about born again Christians. And sometimes there's a contrast. Like, well, that guy's a Christian, but that guy's a born again Christian. That guy's nuts. He's radical. Well, well that guy used to be an addict, so he got born again really changed, put some moral barriers around him to control his behavior. That born-again guy, he's a little out there. 
It's interesting, I was listening to a sermon this week just in prep for this, a guy in, in New York, Tim Keller, and he said, read a recent poll, uh, 70% of people don't want a born-again Christian as their neighbor. <laughs> There's a negative connotation to this term born again in our culture. But please hear me, Jesus is not making a separation between someone who is a follower of him and someone who is born again. If if you're going to be a follower, if you're going to be saved, you're going to be considered born again. In this passage, in his discussion with Nicodemus, a learned man, knows the Old Testament, Jesus is going to engage with three illustrations. The first one of these illustrations is simply this, you must be born again. Simply, what does that mean? Hey, Nicodemus, you have to start over. Start over. I don't know if any of you have ever been asked to start over. That can be really difficult. I was talking to a woman a couple weeks ago. I just met her back getting a donut in the cafe. And she made the comment, she goes, I've been attending this other church for 35 years, but now I've started to attend Harvest. It's really hard. Yeah, because you're starting over. It's a new context. It's new people. We have friends that just moved to the area, moving from the Chicagoland area. That's hard. They're starting over. It's new neighbors. It's new, where's Myers? What is Myers? You know, the whole thing, getting used to a new area. Starting over is difficult. I remember 15 years ago, I was starting to take golf really seriously, and I was starting to break 80. I got my handicap under 10. I'm a left-handed golfer, and I went to my pro, and I, and I said, listen, I, I've never had a lesson, like, but I want to get down to a zero handicap. I want to get down to a scratch golfer, and in golf lowers better. Like, I want to get really good. And he says, well, it's pretty obviously that you're pretty committed to this, that you are pretty intense on this whole thing. He goes, how serious are you? I'm like, I'm like, really serious. I need you to help me with my swing. He says, okay, here's what I want you to do. This summer, golf right-handed. I'm like, what? He's like, golf right-handed this summer. Get a, rid of your left-handed clubs, get a set of right-handed clubs, golf right-handed. I said, I'm shooting low 80s, upper 70s. I'm gonna be like 120. This is going to be embarrassing. It, the whole thing feels backwards. I can't even make contact. That's not what I'm looking for. Just fix the problems in my swing. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. You're a really good bad golfer. <laughs> and, and I can work with you for the next five years. And all I'm going to do is make you a really good bad golfer because your swing is awful. You have so many bad habits, it would be better for you to start over golf right-handed. I did not do that. (laughs) And 15 years later, I'm not a scratch golfer. I'm a pretty good bad golfer. I'm not going to, I wasn't willing to pay the price. I wasn't willing to go through the embarrassment, the, the starting over, it's difficult. In, in Nicodemus' case, he's attacking the very foundation of his identity. Like, like you're known, you're the righteous guy, you're the law expert guy. You have built your foundation on your own righteousness and your own works. Man, man start over. That's hard. It attacks your identity. 
And, and, and for some of us in this room, starting over, changing your identity, like, like, like man, that's, that's tough. Jesus takes a very righteous man and says, though you may be religious, you are not born again. It is possible to be very religious and miss everything that Jesus is calling us to do. Nicodemus looks at him in verse 4. He says, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I don't think he's actually contemplating that. I hope not. He's an educated man. He, he understands that Jesus is talking to him by illustration. He's saying, how at this point in my life do I change the very thing that has been the foundation of my life? I actually think he's, he's giving us some indication into the longing of all of our hearts. I, I, I think as we look back on our lives, we would say, man, I, I would have done things differently. There's some things that I'd like to change. There's some aspects of my personality that if I had my way, it would be a little bit different. I wish I could control my anger a little bit better. I wish I wasn't always so intense. Whatever that is for you, you look and there's this longing like, man, if I could start over, I would do things differently. And, and Nicodemus is asking a question. He's like, how in the world at this point in my life do I change the foundation of my life? Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Here's, in essence, what Jesus just said. There's a difference between a physical birth and a spiritual birth. It is possible to be born physically and never be alive spiritually. Later on, we'll read in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. He's saying not only do you need a physical birth, you need a spiritual birth. It's by water and the spirit. And that water confuses people. It's not baptism. Baptism is something that doesn't save you. It's something that saved people do. It's not baptism. Some have argued, well, it's the water of physical birth. It's talking about that by terms of comparison. It's not that either. So if you've, I don't know if you've ever witnessed a birth or given birth, but if you've been in that room, that water thing is a thing, isn't it? Like, like with our first two kids, with Calvin and Christopher, or with Calvin and Catherine, when, when my wife started heavy labor, the first thing that happened was her water broke. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, my water broke, now I'm in labor, get me to the hospital. With our third kid, Christopher, she never had her water break. She just went into heavy labor. We couldn't figure out why this one was so different. But she had this incredible urge to push. She's waiting in the labor room. The doctor walks in. He's got like one glove on. She's like, I have to push. And he's like, okay, go ahead. She pushes baby out. And what had happened with Christopher is her water had broke, but his head had already dropped. It blocked all the water. All that pressure was there. Dude came out surfing. <laughs> like it was a thing. But that's not what it's talking about here either. I digress. He, here's what I think would have connected the dots for Nicodemus knowing the Old Testament like he did. In the Old Testament, we read in Ezekiel 25, it's God speaking. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart 
of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He's telling Nicodemus, you need to start over. The spirit's going to do something. Do you see how many times in that text we read, I will, I will, I will. The spiritual birth is like the physical birth. I've watched three kids be born. The baby really doesn't do a lot. It's the mom that is doing all the work. I'm not even sure why we celebrate our kids' birthdays, if you really think about it. I think every time your kid has a birthday, you should be celebrating the mom. Anybody with me on that? Here's why. Because the new birth, just like your physical birth, It requires someone else on your behalf willing to endure incredible pain and risk their life. That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. I don't want you to miss this. There's something else here in verse 7. You must be born again. Let me break that down for you. You, individual choice. Where, where, where you, mother, might have given birth to you, the decision to be born spiritually, that's on you. It's a choice you make. Your parents can't make it for you. You must. It's not optional. Well, it's not, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a born-again Christian. No, you must be born again. A different foundation on which your life is built. Titus 3 verse 4 says it this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now now let me just give you a little litmus test here. If if the things that I'm saying to you, um, you're like, man, I don't like that. You probably got a little bit of Pharisee in you. You're pretty good with your own self-righteousness. But if there's something in what I'm saying that makes your heart leap, and you say, it's not about my righteousness, it's about what God does on my behalf, you're close to understanding what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus. Let's keep going. Let's look at the next illustration. It begins in verse 8. Born again means to start over. Jesus is going to start talking about the wind in verse 8. He says this, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So this idea of the wind, he gives a picture. We don't have to guess what Jesus is saying by using the wind as an illustration. He says, you don't know from where it comes and you don't know where it goes. In other words, you don't control it. The wind moves on its own. Not only do you have to start over, you have to let go. So you guys drove in today. Did you notice all the clouds in the sky? Not a lot, right? Perfectly blue, perfectly sunny, perfectly still. How many of you guys can remember last Tuesday? Do you remember how windy it was? Uh, I think the beach was closed for a while. The waves were too high. Swimming was unsafe. It It was real windy here. Okay? Where'd that wind go? When's it coming back? Is it going to come back tomorrow in the afternoon? Spoil fireworks? See, it's like one of the things we know in Michigan is when the wind really starts to blow, it's usually not just the wind. What usually follows the wind? A storm. There's going to be a disruption. It's going to change your plans. 
If we leave here in 35 minutes and all of a sudden there's a strong wind and the skies have turned a different color, you're like, oh crud, day just changed. Cookout just moved inside, right? And what he's saying here is he's saying, listen, when you were born again, the spirit, it's interesting that word spirit in the old or in the Greek is the same word as wind. Wind and spirit, they're the same word. Translated differently throughout the New Testament depending on how they're used. He's saying, just like the wind, when the spirit moves in somebody, it, it, it creates an effect. Something happens. It moves the deck furniture. Tornado, huge effect. We can't see the wind, but you always see its effect. If you claim to be born again, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, has it affected you? Has, has it reset your foundation? Has it changed you? We, we say often a faith that hasn't changed you hasn't saved you. And he's telling Nicodemus, a religious man, not only do you have to start over, you got to let go. You don't get to control what happens next. You don't get to set the terms on what the Spirit is going to do when it changes you, but it's going to change you. I remember growing up in a Baptist church as a kid and getting to the point where I was accepting Jesus and understanding my sin and understanding my need for a Savior. The problem with the Baptist church is you had the annual mission conference. And these people came in from all over the world and they're like, yeah, I'm serving the Lord in Papua New Guinea. Let me show you the worms we eat. And they're showing you all this little food and how they dress. And it's like, listen, Lord, I'll follow you. I'm not doing that. Like, 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 I'll follow, but I'm not, don't make me be a missionary and go to Africa. Don't make me golf right-handed. Don't make me sell the boat. Don't make me quit dating that person. I'll follow you, but don't disrupt my life. Danger. I remember just before we started the church, I was in those final negotiation stages with God of whether or not I was going to be a pastor. And uh, I was in deal-making mode. And I told God, I said, Lord, I'm willing to be a pastor. Just don't make me counsel. Please don't make me counsel. I don't like people. I just, just, <laughs> I don't want to do this. Not only have I spent a ton of time counseling and meeting with people in the last 11, 12 years, it's been the highlight because you see life change. You see transformation when you counsel. But we want to negotiate because when the wind blows, we're scared that the spirit is going to take us in a direction and change us where we don't want to go. And there's certain things that we hold on to. Here's a list. We don't want to see our passions disrupted. Kind of weird. We're pretty passionate about our passions. Lord, I'll follow you, but my foursome tees off Sunday mornings at 10. Lord, I'll follow you, but don't make me not consume this, not do this, not be known by this. Not just our passions. You know what? We might have to let go of some of that bitterness and actually forgive somebody. It's going to be hard. Conflict. So many of us hate conflict. Jesus says, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. And 
Philippians 1.29, he says, it's been granted to us not just to follow him, but to suffer for his sake. Very few people have followed Jesus Christ where it hasn't created a disturbance in the relationships it works, in the relationship in their neighborhoods. And if that wasn't bad enough, usually it leaks into your family relationships. It's like the wind, man. You don't know where it's going to create a difference, but often it leads to some conflict when your worldview is in complete contrast to what we see outside these doors. Don't be surprised if following Jesus is going to create some conflict. So often I'm talking to somebody and their measure of truth is, well, I just think. Or you know what, I, I, I think this. And maybe where the wind is going to blow is you're going to have to come to the realization that what you think isn't the greatest source of wisdom available. You're going to have to be teachable. You're going to have to say, I, I don't know. As a matter of fact, the inklings of my heart usually lead me in a bad place. And if I'm going to follow Jesus, then I'm going to have to understand his word and understand wisdom and what he would ask me to do. But we don't like to change. Like a person going into a surgery to deal with a tumor on the brain and the doctor looks and says, you know what, we can get the tumor, but this might alter your personality. That would be terrifying. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, following the Lord means you're going to yield. He's going to take you in a direction that you might not anticipate. C.S. Lewis at the end of Mere Christianity, he said it this way. He said, this principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. You lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the, in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died, hear this, nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. If you're keeping notes, the big question is this. Is Jesus disrupting your life? In John chapter 3, to Nicodemus, it's going to create a disruption to follow me. To his disciples, you're going to have to leave what you do to follow me. To the woman at the well in John 4, this thing's going to create a disruption in your life. And sadly... Many say I would claim the name of Jesus as long as it doesn't create a disruption. Let's keep going. Verse 9. Jesus said to him, how, or I'm sorry, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can I... How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Look at verse 13. I want you to focus on 13 and 14. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And then verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What Jesus did just did, and Nicodemus would have been all over this knowing the Old Testament. He just referred to a story in Numbers 21. Let me just quickly read this for you. It says in Numbers 21, verse 4, From Mount Hor they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. They've been freed from slavery. They're in the wilderness. They're wandering towards the promised land, and they become impatient. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. 
Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Okay. What were they eating in the wilderness? Help me remember. How were they getting the manna? It was showing up every morning. Whose provision was it? It was God's. Warning. Be very careful to loathe God's provision in your life. I woke up this morning to a headline in the news. A bunch of our political leaders saying, we, don't, we think we should cancel the 4th of July. There's nothing to celebrate in this country. Are you for real? The freedoms that we have? Israel, out of bondage in Egypt, loathing God's provision of food. Warning, don't be there. We need to do a better job of focusing on our blessings. It says, verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take the serpents away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Jesus has just said to a righteous man in Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus is beginning to unpack this idea that that story from Numbers 21 is a foreshadowing of Jesus being lifted on the cross. Seems odd that people would be made to look at a snake. It says Moses made a stake. He didn't take one of the stakes. He made a representation of a snake, put it on a pole. The people were healed if they looked up at it. Why a serpent? Why, like, like, why that image? Well, we're going to be told later on in 2 Corinthians that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf. Jesus became, he took our sin on the cross. He endured God's wrath in our place. So if the people wanted to be healed from the bite of the serpent, they were told to look at this image of a serpent that Moses had lifted high on a pole. Or they could look at the mountain in the distance, right? Or they could crawl down and wash themselves in the river. No. One option, to look. I wonder why Moses didn't say, hey, first 50 to crawl up here and touch this pole, you win, you get healed. Well, that would have taken effort. That would have created a competition. Everyone would have been doing it in their own strength. No, the serpent, the third illustration, all you have to do is look. Doesn't matter how sick you are. Doesn't matter how many times you've been bitten. Doesn't matter how long you've been suffering. But you've got to look. You've got to recognize that you're dying. That you're not going to be able to get better on your own. That you need a savior. Jesus is explaining through illustration what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be saved. You're going to need to start over, rebuild your foundation. He wants to be that in your life. You need to let go and you need to look up. Here's the interesting thing. We don't understand. Did I do that? You did that. Here's the interesting thing. 
Jesus doesn't resolve his conversation with Nicodemus. So he's going to go on and say some things like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, don't miss these three words, will not perish. This isn't just about the good news and the love of Jesus Christ. This is about two alternatives. You're either saved or you perish. Will not perish but have everlasting life. And then he goes on, but the conversation never resolves. We never know what happens with Nicodemus. Will he change? Will he rebuild his foundation? Will everything that he stands for, everything that he's known for, will he be willing to give those things up to follow Jesus? Here's the truth. Most would not. There's a poem written by a man by the name of Wilbur Reese. I like it. It explains the problem. He says this. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I, I want the warmth of the womb, but not a new birth. I want about a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. No disruption. Just enough religion, just enough of God to make us feel safe, to make us maybe feel better about ourselves. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not enough, Nicodemus. You have to be born again. So the dialogue ends. We don't hear anything about Nicodemus really until John 19. And in John 19, Jesus died on the cross, and we pick up the story here. It says this in verse 38. And after those things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Here's all I'm going to tell you. I don't know when Nicodemus' heart changed, but here's what I know. Maybe it was in the moment that Jesus was hanging on the cross that he put together the analogy, like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Maybe it was just then. But here's what we know. In the aftermath of Jesus' death, Nicodemus shows up again. And he spent a decent amount of money buying the perfumes and the oils to prepare the body. He's going to do it himself. Now, in Jesus' day and Nicodemus' day, only slaves and women were allowed to embalm a body. But in that moment, Nicodemus says, I'll do it. And I don't care what anybody thinks. Human pride set aside. I'll do whatever you call me to do. To do what Nicodemus did, it was costly, it was humbling, and it was dangerous in that season for him as a ruler of the Jews to associate with a crucified Savior. And Nicodemus says, I'll do it. Surrender. Born again. Saved. Do me a favor, just bow your heads for a moment. As we close, that's the resolution of John 3. How's it resolve in your heart? What's the foundation? What's your, what's your identity? 
Have you trusted in your own righteousness? Are you going through the motions? Are you playing a religious game that gets you nowhere? And if that means start over, if that's what God's calling you to do, you'll rush to the front to start over, to pray with someone, to say, I'm not sure I've done this. Or or, or for some of you, You can look back and say, there was a time I repented. I acknowledged Jesus as my savior. But the reality is the way I'm living now, I will not let it cause a disruption. And there's things that God is telling me to change. And I'm starting to have some questions of whether I'm a follower or not. Get those settled today. Don't leave here. Don't wait. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for a a meeting by dark where you just break through in glorious light. Father, we don't have to wonder what it means to follow you. You're very, very clear. We're going to need to let go. We're going to need, in some cases, to start over. And we're going to have to look up. Father, thank you. God, thank you for sending your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.